Greetings. In Jesus' name, God's people gathering together with the temple in its condition, in its um, construction. Could call it a construction zone this morning. That's what we are. A construction zone. So thank you, brother, for sharing about building the house and the wall and how God's people work together and how they face the enemy and how they failed and how they have revival and all those things. Thank you, too, for the um, open sharing and what was shared there. Very, very meaningful. This morning, I'd like to go on the second chapter of Ruth. I had the first chapter last time. And does anybody remember anything about the message on the first chapter of Ruth? Anybody want to volunteer anything that they have that they remember? Yes. Going out of God's country into the heathen country for our benefit isn't always a benefit. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes what looks like a good shortcut becomes a long cut. Anything else? How the decision of parents have a great effect on the children. Okay. Uh, the first chapter of Ruth, the decision of Elimelech. Uh, Elimelech, that's right, had a major effect on his family, the decisions he made. We can choose what we do, but we can't choose the consequences. Okay. Is that in your notes? You have that in your head? Okay. (laughs) Actually, that should be in our heads, too. (laughs) Good. Yes. Those words of commitment that Ruth gave. Mm -hmm. But you weren't here. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, well, I'll do a little bit of review also. Because not everybody was here and everybody heard it. And it's always good to have a little bit of review. But before we do that, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we... Do bow before you. You are the true builder. You are the true restorer of the breaches, Lord. You are the true God, the true strength of Israel and the true strength of your people. Lord, as we gather together this morning, we open up your word. I pray you would instruct us, Lord, as only you can do. Lord, it is we can say we can look at your word. We can 
open it up, we can read it, but it is you which illuminates our hearts. And Lord, we ask you to do that in our hearts this morning. To prepare us, to prepare us, Lord, to build your house, to rebuild your wall, and Lord, to resist the enemy and to be a glory of your people upon this earth. Lord, we ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And also welcome the visitors. I didn't want to ignore you, but good to see you here. And we've been going through the, just starting to go through the book of Ruth, and I had decided that it would be best if I, rather than take a topic, you just take a scripture and follow with the flow of where the scripture takes us. And that was my intention to learn a little bit more and that kind of ex- expository preaching. So uh, you are my guinea pigs in this because you are listening to me and I am inexperienced. But we're going through a little book of Ruth. Uh, it's a picture of a personal domestic life in Israel set in the days of the judges. And like was mentioned this morning, the, the days of the kings, like there were, seemed like there were so many of the kings that actually made wrong decisions. Well, in the days of the judges, it was actually probably darker. Well, at least it's dark. The period was characterized by this phrase, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That was a characteristics of that time because there was no king. And the people would sway from Jehovah to Baal, and then get under uh, correction by God, and they go back to Jehovah, and then they go back to Baal, and they did this over and over. That was the period of the judges. And the main body of Ruth is during a peaceful time of revival. And of course, Ruth is of interest because she, as we know, is in the lineage of King David, and in the lineage of Christ, so it has more than just that, but it has, it has, um, it has a very, very unique picture in a cultural setting in a little village in Israel about 3,300 years ago, and it's very unique. And I thought, where else in literature could you get a picture like this? I don't know of any. I don't, I'm not uh, big in reading literature. Maybe there are some out there, but this is very unique, even if it wouldn't be scripture. So, a little bit of review. Chapter 1 is the background setting for the rest of the story, and it covers about 10 years. It begins with hard times in Israel. A famine is in Israel. Bethlehem means house of bread, and there was no bread in Bethlehem. The village was not living up to its name, probably through the sins of the people. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, they migrated across the Jordan River, and they went over to the land of Moab. Now the Israelites were the descendants of Abraham. They were God's covenant people. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot, and they were heathen worshippers. Uh, heathen worshippers, idol worshippers. They were heathen, <laughs> idol worshippers. And we discuss whether it was right or wrong for them to go 
to Moab, to a heathen land, and we didn't come up with a conclusive answer, whether it was right or wrong. But Elimelech was afraid his family would fall victim to the famine in Judah, so he took what he thought was an easier way out. It was a decision that gave his family food, but affected them majorly in life. Because of the pressures they faced at home, he took his family into a Gentile country, into a heathen environment. But they only went there to visit. They only went there for a time. They were only there going to be there for until it gets better at home, but it didn't work out the way they planned. Elimelech dies, and then his two sons marry Moabites' women which is against God's law, like we even heard this morning. In fact, in that whole list, you didn't read that verse, but their Moabites were in those women that they married that were not allowed. They were not allowed to marry them. So that was clearly wrong. It was against the law of God. But we could ask the question, whose fault was it that those boys married those women? I could say they were set up. By their father. Didn't make their decision right, but it was, they were made vulnerable by the decisions of their father. It was not unlike Lot when he pitched his tent against, uh, against, uh, towards Sodom. Was it wrong to pitch his tent towards Sodom? Well, no, probably not, but the effects were devastating for him, for his family, for his descendants. Then came the major shift in the, in the chapter, and that's when Naomi rose to go back. She, in her grief, in her despair and everything, she remembered back there, like the prodigal son, she remembered back in Jerusalem, it, not Jerusalem, back in Bethlehem, back in her land. Um, there, it was good back there. There were times that were really good. I know there were some things we didn't like there, but really, we had it good now. And so she wanted to go back. But she wanted to go back alone. She didn't feel like she had anything to offer to her daughters-in-law. And so Orpha goes back to her gods and her people. But she couldn't shake this one woman called Ruth. She couldn't shake her. And that's where Ruth uttered from the bottom of her loyal and sorrowing heart. She uttered these words. Entreat me not to leave thee or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If aught but death do part thee and me. Those are the immortal words that go on in weddings today. But in those words, she did four things that she promised with Naomi. She promised, uh, she, she said, uh, she, she uh, committed herself to a common place, a common people, a common theology, and a common destiny. And to 
do this, by default, she had to forsake her place and her people and her God and her destiny. She had to forsake one to take the other. There was no like one foot here and one foot there. It was one or it was the other. And so Naomi came back with Ruth to... So Naomi, Naomi comes back, Ruth and Naomi come back, but Ruth, Naomi comes back as a total failure. The women in Bethlehem could hardly believe their eyes when they saw Naomi. They said, is this really Naomi? Now the name Naomi means pleasant. And so Naomi protests. She said, if you Call out, Pleasant! That was her name. Said, I won't look at you. She didn't say that, but this is inferred. I will not respond. It is so uncharacteristic of my life. Now, you call out, Bitter! I'll look. Because that is how I feel. Call out, Mara, and it will fit my situation. She had come back to the familiar places of her, probably her childhood and probably her and her young married life. She could probably go to the places where she was at in her courtship with Elimelech. She could probably remember the places where she went with her little boys tagging alongside of her. And she could see the neighbors and their houses and uh, everything just spoke of her past that is now all gone. This is where our home was that we started out together. This is where we had our little boys. This is where we went. I don't know if they had actually synagogues or what back then, exactly how they met. I don't know what they did to worship, whether they out to the temple or how their social life was. But she went back to where she was. And as she got back, with just grief and sorrow, Naomi was a shattered person. And so we have in Ruth twenty in Ruth one verse twenty two. And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And that is the end of ten years of their life. Now chapter two, which we're not going to go the whole way through chapter two. Chapter two, the whole way through, and tech for the last verse, is one day in their life. So the first chapter is 10 years, second chapter is one day. In Bethlehem, Naomi founds her, probably her half-ruined cottage that they have forsaken and still belong to her, and they took up residence there. And the next morning, they wake up in Bethlehem. Naomi wakes up as it's getting daylight. Ruth wakes up as it's getting daylight. Naomi is where she is at. Naomi is shattered. She is discouraged. She is just bitter. Ruth wakes up in a completely different place. 
She has no memories here. She's in a new village. All the places, all the people, all the customs are strange to her. She's in a land among people that are foreign, and she wakes up. And I'm just going a little bit. Before she gets out of bed, she lets her mind wonder what has been happening. You know, in your major change in your life. I don't know if you wake up in a foreign country, and before you get out of bed, you think. So she's thinking. She, of course, she says, I've lost my husband. I am a widow. But the big event in her life in recent days is her conversion. Her conversion to Naomi's God and Naomi's people. Everything had changed with that decision. Her commitment, her emotion, her resolve, it was so real. It was so strong. Her decision was life-changing to say the least. And she may have been riding on that emotion and the glory of that event. Now, now it's morning in a strange land, in a strange house. All her troubles are still with her. Nothing much has changed on the outside. She's still a widow. She's still facing poverty. Her future is still very uncertain. She's unemployed. She has no way of sustaining herself. She is a foreigner. She's an outsider. She is outside any cliques that exist in this village. She has no friends, and now she is facing real life. It's time to get up and to face strangers and to face the challenges of everyday life. You know, that's how our lives are too. Each one of our journeys are different. But if you are a Christian, at some point in your life, you've faced a crisis in your life. Like Ruth, there was a time in your life where you made a decision to either serve your gods and remain in that relative security of your gods, or... Maybe some, also some event happened that caused you to come to a time of decision. And you made a decision when you saw your lost condition and you saw that you were facing judgment without God. You know you were lost. You know you'd be go to hell. And you were faced with that. And you came face to face with the Savior. There came a point of decision when faith rose up in your life to see the Lord Jesus and his redemption, like we sang this morning. And there came in your trembling, and then came your trembling submission to him as your Lord and Savior. One of the vows that we ask each Christian that gets baptized, we ask this one of these questions. Say, Have you renounced the world and the flesh and the devil? And have you chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life?
And at some point, however you did that, that's what you did when you became a Christian. And you experienced the joy and the blessing that followed. And then, at some point in the not too distant future, you also woke up to real life. You, we still have many of our problems with us. In fact, we may have have a few more. Life is still uncertain. There is much land to be conquered. There are new skills. There are new people. There are new areas of conflict to face. And the bubble of that first emotion wanes low. And the race, the cross-country to the end-of-life race begins. You see, Ruth had made that passionate commitment. She had made that absolute no bars, no not nothing held back commitment to Naomi and her God. And she had taken the first steps of obedience by forsaking her people and her gods. And she came with Naomi to Bethlehem. And now she is waking up in a little house with her mother-in-law. And this was her new life. Now she is in the place to live this commitment out. And that's the title of this message, A New Beginning. And so we are, A New Beginning. Ruth, chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Not say ears of corn. They didn't have corn in Palestine. They had grain. They had barley. They had wheat and maybe some other grains, not sure. So when they talk about corn, it's talking about grain. It's an old English term. So this was the beginning of barley harvest. Now, what is she doing here? Well, gleaning, gleaning has a place in the law. Uh, when the reapers uh, go through a field and they harvest the barley, they spill some. Even today, I think with the big combines and so on, there is a certain percentage of grain actually goes out the back through with the chaff. I don't know. They have numbers how much it is. I don't know what it is. But a small percentage gets uh, gets wasted. The uh, combine doesn't get it all. Well, back in you did it by hand, the reapers didn't get it all. There were some left over, but it was still in the head, so you could see it. Whatever heads get dropped. So gleaning is going after the reapers and picking up what's left over. And actually, that was commanded in the law. You can actually turn to Leviticus 19. And we'll see where God actually has that. Verses 9 and 10. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou glean gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt lead them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So, 
Leviticus commands the farmers in Israel that they should not completely harvest their fields. They were commanded to cut corners in their harvest. This is a good way to cut corners, okay? They were actually commanded by God to be generous. If they happened to drop a bundle of grain, they were commanded to leave it on the ground and not to go back and pick it up. So they had this. Now, what was, what was going on here? Well, this is one of the social assistance programs that Israel had. God set it up. This is God's social assistance program, okay? It commanded the farmers to have a generous heart, and it commanded the poor to be active and work for their food, a way for them to provide for their own needs with dignity. You know, that reminds me of my childhood. We occasionally had someone stop by our farm, where I grew up on, and he was what we called a junk man. He would ask if we have any trash. Not um, he's looking for metal or something like that. He would gladly take things off our hands that he could take it to the salvage yard and get some money. So he was a gleaner in that sense. I don't know if they still do that today. I suppose I think I saw some drive around already doing that. But that was he was he didn't have a regular job, but he was not unemployed. He was earning a living. They were gleaning. Now, Naomi and Ruth were poor. They needed food. They had no body to support them at this point. What does Jesus say we should pray for? Actually, I think Matt read it this morning. You read the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us, Lord. Lord, we have a need. Give us this day our daily bread. It sounds somewhat passive, doesn't it? It says, I have a need. Lord, give it. That's what it's saying. You take it right at face level. You say, give it to me because I have a need here. Today, I will stay home and I will pray for my food. The Lord has promised that his children will not be reduced to begging bread. So today I will stay home and I will pray. But Ruth, on her own initiative, sets out to glean in the fields to support her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. This showed a number of things. It showed a wonderful, hardworking spirit in Naomi. She's not afraid of work. But it also showed a spiritual side of Naomi. Ah, Ruth. The name wrong. Ruth. She would not have been more spiritual if she'd have stayed home and prayed. In fact, she would have been less so. You know, this is the same Lord Jesus that tells us ask, seek, and knock. Ask and keep on asking and you will receive. Seek, keep on seeking, you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and it will be open unto you. That's what the Lord tells us to do. Now that could be very passive. But right in the context of of the prayer that we have of the Lord's Prayer, 
it appears that the asking Jesus would be a very active endeavor. If we just stay in our prayer closet and we just ask and say, Lord, you said you would give it to us, it would be the same as, Lord, we, you have promised to give us food and we stay in our closet and pray for food. To be consistent. It's very active. Now, i like to bring the other side out. There are times when a Sennacherib with a vast army comes up against us and there is no way we can, there's no possible logical, physical way we can overcome this. That does happen. And there are times you need to take the letter that Sennacherib gives to you and you need to take it before the Lord and you say, Lord, if you do not move, we're done. And that's real. There are times like that. And that time, they didn't go out and fight. The army of the Lord, uh, angel of the Lord rather, went out one night. And uh, the next morning, they found 185,000 dead soldiers in Sennacherib's camp. There was even no battle. And they left. They won. The Lord did the work. There. I think also of David. Goliath. There comes Goliath, and here's David. And he goes out with a sling, and he overcomes the enemy with a sling. No armor, no sword, no spear. But he never again went out against the army or the enemy with a sling. Later on, he did many battles. He went out in the same kind of faith, but he went out with conventional armor, his sword and his spear. And we need to remember that because sometimes we can get one mighty event and say that's the normal. No, no. There are different situations. It's not the new normal now that we all go out with slings and stones. Sometimes all we can do is pray. Sometimes it is disobedience to only pray. Praying is not always a spiritual exercise. Sometimes we can pray in the stead of obedience. And that's not spiritual. Now, I'm quite certain that Ruth prayed that morning before she asked Naomi to give her a blessing to go and glean. And then she got out of the little hut she slept in, out of her air-conditioned little room, and went out into the early morning sunshine. She was going to walk with her new God in the way that he had made provision for her. To glean. That was the provision that she had been given by God. This was her God. This was her new God. And this was God's way. And she was walking in it. So what, what is God asking you to do after you pray? He says in Christ, in the spirit, you will have victory. And he also says, flee youthful lust. He also says, follow 
after righteousness. Now that word follow is pursue. Now I think we have some hunters here this morning. Do we have, I don't put your hands up, but we have some hunters here this morning. You shoot a deer and wound him, and he leaves a blood trail, and you pursue that deer. You are watching for every blood mark on that ground, and when the blood drops, stop, you may still try to track him by the upturned leaves and so on. I've never tracked a deer. I don't know how you do it. But you're pursuing it. God says, after you pray, you pursue righteousness in that way with everything you got. He says, let no corrupt communication, no foul or abusive language come out of your mouth. Let everything you say edify those who hear. That is not God's job. That is your job. So pray and then get up and walk in faith. That is true prayer. Verse 3. And she came and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, unto Boaz who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Her hap was. Do you believe in luck this morning? Are we lucky some days and some days we're not lucky? Some days we have good fortune and some days we have bad fortune. The Hebrew definition, according to Strong's, this word hap, the Hebrew definition is something met with, an example, an accident or fortune. (laughs) It's something that happens. It just happens. I'm not going to dissect this one. I'm going to let Eldon do that. (laughs) But I do know she was walking in the will of God. Okay? She was walking in God's will. She was making use of the provision that God had for her. She was on her way to obey God. And it just so happened that she had ended in this field. And we're going to let that at that. I, I believe... Well, let's say it this way. This morning, we have a God who really, really cares for us. You may feel very poor this morning and very insecure. And that's okay. Just pray and then do the next step that God is calling you to do. And you will hap also. Ruth experienced a very natural moving of the supernatural hand of God. That's what she had. That makes me love God. That makes me want to serve God. But here in the story of Ruth now, we are introduced to the main character of this story, which is Boaz. He is identified as part of the family of Elimelech, which be Naomi's husband. He could have been a cousin, a brother, a half-brother, or a nephew, it doesn't say, it just says it was near kin. Likely, he knew Elimelech from years ago. Before Elimelech and Naomi left, he was probably acquainted, well acquainted with them because they would have had family reunions. <laughs> what did they have back then? But it's a small village, everyone knew each other. He knew of that family. 
Now, the first indication as to what kind of man Boaz was is in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. The Lord be with you. This shows us something of the heart and character of Boaz. This was not a time when Israel was falling away from God and worshiping idols. This was a time when there was, there was, uh, a revival had taken place. Things were in good shape, in much better condition they were before. And here we have one man who his heart is right. Apparently his lovers, his lovers, his workers loved him and had a good relationship with him. You can often tell the real character of a man in authority by seeing how he relates to his staff and by how they think of him. He greeted his workers. He appreciated his workers. They were not just cogs in a wheel to get him to make money. They were not um, just for his benefit. He you could see by that those greetings and the way back that there was a he had a care and and an appreciation for them and he greeted them he greeted them the lord be with you yahweh be with you and they responded with a like blessing the lord bless thee how do you greet those that you come in contact with regularly or every day How do you greet when you get up in the morning? Do you greet? Or do you just get a grunt? Do you appreciate those around you? When you go to work or school? Noah Boaz was a man of character who cared about people. Verses 5 to 7. Then Boaz said unto his servants that were set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers, I think that's a foreman, answered and said, It is the Moabite's damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray thee, and she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now. That she tarried a little in the house. She rested just a little bit. So what is Ruth doing here? She's working hard. Her back is probably hurting. She's probably getting hot. Sun's pretty high by now. She took a little break, but she's been out there. She's at it. That does say something about Ruth's character. Laziness is not a godly characteristics. It appears she was very diligent. She came to this field and she timidly asked if she could glean there. And when she got permission, she set to work with a purpose and a will. Was she aware that she was being observed? Was she putting on a show? No, I think just the stresses of poverty, 
stared her in the face, and the virtue of her character caused her to be industrious. I mean, obviously, you can have virtue. Let's say it this way. If I wouldn't get paid at work, I probably wouldn't go to work, okay? So I can have, I can have a virtuous character and still not work in that situation. But she had a need and she had character and you brought those two together and there was action. And she was oblivious of the fact that she is being observed. But she is being observed. Here's the English Standard Version. She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Are people watching you? Yeah, they're watching you. At home. At work, in public, when you go shopping, when you go to the park, wherever you go, you are observed. Now, if you are observed, like Ruth was here, not knowing you were watched, and we can just put, just simply put um, something in context for for some of this in this side of the room, we can say, okay, you're at work and you're being watched, but you don't know you're being watched. You're just doing your normal work. Or you can say at home, you're in your household, you're in your house, you're with your children or wherever you are, and you don't know you're being watched. There's a little mouse in the corner just watching you and watch the report. Someone comes in the door later on and say, how's it going in this home? And then a report, the mouse will give a report. If you were watched and not knowing that you were watched, what would the report be? What things do you like? What things do you hate? What was your conversation like? Were you kind? Were you gentle? Were you otherwise? It's with your siblings, with your children, with your parents, with your co-workers, with your fellow believers. When you are just being yourself. Ruth didn't know it, but she was under inspection. The supervisor, which is the foreman here, was observing what kind of job she did, and he was impressed with her. And that impression that she made to the foreman got conveyed to Boaz and made an impression on him. And she didn't even know Boaz. And she probably didn't know the foreman either. She was just doing who she was, doing what she was. She was a new believer in a new country, among new people, in a new culture, doing a new occupation. She just had fully embraced her new place in life. Though it was not a desirable place, she had embraced it. She had given herself to it and said, this is what we need to do. This is what God's will is. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be happy in it. I'm going to be do my best in this lowly job. And her character is impressing to those who were observing her. When I was a boy, we used to play a game called King of the Mountain. Any of you boys ever play that? 
Ah, uh, so some big boys put their hands up. Okay. <laughs> King of the mountain. It, all it took was a pow, whatever the pow was. I don't know. It could be dirt, rocks, anything. And the one boy runs up the top and says, I'm the king of the mountain. And that's a challenge for the other boys to come up and knock him off because everybody wants to be the king of the mountain. Because when you're finally the king of the mountain, you're very impressive. (laughs) You can impress people when you are the king, the winner. We can tend to think we are impressing when we have nice things. Clothing or houses or cars or money or success. Or when you can preach well, or when you can persuade people well, or when you can win arguments and put other people in their places. You are impressive. Ruth was doing the equivalent of picking up aluminum cans along the road to take to the scrapyard for a little bit of money for a living. And she was impressive. Because it's not what you have that's impressive. It's who you are that is impressive. She was way at the bottom of society and she was impressive. Think about it as you face your own desire to impress people. It's not what you have or even what you can do, but it's your character that is truly impressive. We are under inspection also. And at times we don't know it. We are being watched by others to see how we will walk with God. And what they see will make a difference, positive or negative. So Ruth is there. She's in the hot late morning sunshine, busy picking up little heads of barley. Wherever she finds them, her her eyes are always down. She's looking. She's bending over. When she finds one, she puts it to where her, her stash is. And she adds it to her slowly growing collection. That's what she's at. That's where her life is that day. What is she going through her mind as she's going through this monotonous work? You know, when you just look for barley, you know, your mind doesn't have to stay with it all the time. So what is she thinking? Is she discouraged this morning? Is she singing? Is she thinking of her past? Is she thinking of her future? Is she worrying? Is she wondering, how am I going to learn to know all these strangers and these strange customs? Or is she thinking about her new God, the God of Israel? Is she going over the history of Israel and recognizes that they had so many failures and wondering why did they always leave this God? Is he such a mighty God? Why were they not faithful to him? Is she wondering what the next Sabbath is going to be like? I mean, they all gather together in their religious ritual, how she's going to find herself there. We don't know what she's thinking about. A a thousand things. She's thinking. Her mind is going. And here comes this man walking across the field directly towards her. And he doesn't talk to the other reapers. He comes right to her and he talks to her. And I don't know if she had any idea who he was at this point. So in verse 8, then said Boaz unto Ruth, hearest thou not? That means, listen, my daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap and go thou after them. 
Have I not charged the young men that they should not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of what the young men have drawn. Here she is. This man comes up and talks to her and says this to her. What? I'm not an employee. I'm of no benefit to you at all. All I'm doing is a scavenger. You are giving me direction and protection and provision. You know, that water, when he said you can get water over here, that was a big thing. Um, they were outside the, the, the well of water that David, many years later, David craved the water from the well of Bethlehem. There was a well in Bethlehem. It could have been a mile away. So if she got thirsty and she needed water and she had none, she would have had to go a mile to get water and come back. And he says, you can go over here and get water. That was not a little thing. But me, and I've been given a permanent position as a gleaner, not a reaper, but as a gleaner, I have a permanent position with you. This doesn't make sense at all to her, and she says it in the next verse. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger. Here we can ask the question, is Ruth the first gleaner that Boaz ever had in his field? Question to ask. Probably not. Did Boaz treat every gleaner like this? Hmm. He had a generous heart, we know that. But did he treat them all like this? Here's a question we could ask. Is Boaz a sanctuary city for all foreigners and all gleaners? Is he running a social program, a soup kitchen? Is he proposing running a country without borders? Is he a non-discriminatory in the areas of race and color and religion and sex and natural origin and sexual orientation or gender identity? Is he just completely non-discriminatory? Why do you think he treated Ruth like this? Well, he actually he says why he did. Next verse, verse 11. And Boaz said, answered and said unto her, she, she asked him a question. Why do you do this? And he said, It has fully been shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thy husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knowest knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work. And a full reward be given unto thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Ruth had nothing to offer Boaz. She was no benefit to him at this time. He really had no responsibility towards her more than the regular gleaning laws that he had there. 
In fact, Ruth's people, the Moabites, were enemies of the Israelites. And many times, they actually opposed them. So he would have had that. They were hostile. But he was a godly man, and he recognized a true convert when he saw one. And it wasn't just words. It wasn't just a testimony. It wasn't just a profession. He saw reality in Ruth, and it caused admiration and joy to come to his heart. He was a man of means, so he was in a position to be able to bless her materially because he had the means to do it. He wasn't poor. But he did much more than that. He didn't just bless her. He encouraged her. He said, you know what we think of, uh, what were her thoughts before Boaz came across the field to talk to her? What were her thoughts? We don't know what her thoughts were. But what do you think her thoughts were now? I heard everything you did to your mother-in-law. Since the death of your husband. I heard how you left your father and your mother and your gods and your people. And how you came with Naomi. How you are loyal to her. How you adopted her God. And he said, and you come to live in a land of complete strangers. And I want to bless you for that. And he says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. In other words, I can bless you materially. I can encourage you. But the Lord, may he do much, much, much more than that. And we know the story how he did much more than that later. Boaz encouraged Ruth as if she were a new convert to the God of Israel. And in that sense, she stands just like a convert to Christianity today. She stands as an example. Here's a list that I have found. She put her trust in the God of Israel. She left her former associates. She had come to live among strangers. She was very low in her own eyes. She had found protection under the wings of God. Older Christians should be like Boaz to younger Christians who are like Ruth. And here are the words of Spurgeon that I found that I thought is appropriate to read here. He said, observe that he saluted her with words of tender encouragement. For this is precisely what I want all the elder Christians among you to do to those who are the counterparts of Ruth. I want you to make a point of looking out to young converts and speaking to them goodly words and comfortable words, whereby they may be cheered and strengthened. Doesn't that just seem right? Boaz and Ruth, an older Christian, an older man, an older person walking in the faith, coming to a young in the faith, is a young, sincere Christian. Or we have... In established setting, we have this, this Bethlehem. We have this 
covenant people culture. And here we have a foreigner coming in, a sincere foreigner who is who's coming in with a heart to blend with God's people. And we have that joining of those two. We have one who comes in with a fully committed heart to serve God and to blend in with God's people. And we have a caring, um, let me see how I can say it. One is reaching out with a heart to bless and one is coming in with a heart to blend. Okay, that's, that's what I want to say. You have an older person that has a heart to bless. You have a younger Christian with a heart to blend. And you have a beautiful, beautiful picture, just like we have right here. There is no compromise. There is only recognition to godliness where it is found. Maybe we need to remember that. One coming in with a heart to blend, one reaching out with a heart to bless. And Ruth, in verse 13, she said, And then she said, And let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me, and thou hast spoken friendly unto thy handmaid, though I be not like one of thy handmaidens. And I think this is probably it's the time late and I would have some things more to add, but I think we'll probably just stop right here. At the ending, well, actually not at the complete ending because the day goes on. It's not even noontime yet. They get the noonday meal and then she gleans all afternoon. She goes home with a five-gallon bucket of grain, five and a half gallons is what they think it is, which is an enormous amount for gleaners. And they have that, but we'll let that go to the next time. So, may the Lord allow this example of this young convert, Ruth, all the things that we saw in her life, and this man, Boaz, and all the character we see in his life, and let them be an example to us in our life here. So, may God bless you.